Here at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to series two of the Turing podcast. My name's Ed Calstry and I'm here with my co-hosts B Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate. B, how's it going? Hey, it's going okay. How's it going with you? Not bad, not bad at all. I mean Surviving this second lockdown. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it could it could be better. We're in the UK and uh, in the midst of lockdown 2.0. Uh, Joe, how are you faring? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I mean, I've done a lot of walks. <laughs> so, <laughs> Haven't we all? Yeah, sums it up really, doesn't it? <laughs> so what did you do today? I looked at the computer and I went for a walk. Yeah, zoom That's and walk. <laughs> I was just joking that I rewarded myself by watching my large screen after a day's work at my medium-sized screen, so... We know how to live. We know how 2020. To live, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, as I mentioned, it's series two. And to kick off series two, we're going to be introducing a bit of a new feature to the podcast, to the introduction before we get uh, into the interview section. Um, it's uh, it's going to be called Alan Turing's Wheel of Fun. Did I get that right? Yeah, it's Alan Turing's Wheel of Fun. <laughs> if If any... Any of you guys listening to us have a better idea, please. Of what's cool. We are open to suggestions. Let, let me explain what Alan Turing's Wheel of Fun is first before we ask uh, what it perhaps should be named better. <laughs> so Alan Turing's Wheel of Fun is going to be a virtual wheel that we spin every intro to the podcast, uh, which will select a fun AI-related game for us to play. Um, so we've got a few interesting games. They're all They're all called things like would AI lie to you or have AI got news for you? <laughs> there are some other suggestions going around. Blind data was one of them. <laughs> they're all uh, they're all bad um, bad puns on great puns. Sorry, they're all bad great but puns good. <laughs> <laughs> on uh, British TV shows. If you're listening from another country, I, I do apologise. Um, <laughs> but um, well, let's let's uh, spin Turing's Alan Turing's Wheel of Fun and see what game we get to play first. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like the first game we're going to be playing is Would AI Lie to You? Oh, it's exciting because today it's my turn to be the game host. So, um, Ed and Joe, for Would AI Lie to You, I have... I'm going to give you a, um, a group of uh, paper titles and you need to tell me which one is the real one. Now, I have to say that even the fake ones were titles of actual papers that I changed so that it looks, you know, so, so that it's not true. But it doesn't mean that there isn't some scientific paper that is with a title very, very similar to this one. Okay. So we've got two so, so we've got two lies and a truth or two truths and a lie in the 
paper um, titles. Will's. <laughs> I'll, I'll let dimension. you guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just. Le- <laughs> Wow. It's an added dimension of of um difficulty. Okay. Yes. So we've got This is the Alan Turing's Will of Fun. Three scientific papers. They they've all got titles. Yeah. They could be they could be real or they could be they could be lies. Let let's go yes. go go ahead. Give them to us. Okay, you ready? So title number one. The fluid fluid dynamics of the cheese fountain. Title number two. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> go, yes. go on, carry on. <laughs> Title number two. Can Harry Potter still put a spell on us in a second language? An fMRI study on reading emotion Latin literature in late bilinguals. Okay. And number three. How to commit a perfect murder, a machine learning approach. Very interesting. Interesting. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel like... At least the middle one. That We've got to get long, you to repeat. Long title. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm gonna. Got, I'm gonna repeat the second one. Yeah. Can Harry Potter still put a spell on us in a second language? That's the the main question of the paper. I I feel like um, that one could be a, a lie where you switch one of the words and you've just switched the actual word with Harry Potter. Um, uh, can you give us the first one again? Sorry, what were you going to say, Jay? The fluid, the fluid dynamics of the cheese fountain. But people do fluid dynamics study of the cheese Harry fountain Potter now, don't they? Which makes me feel very old. <laughs> <laughs> people probably study yeah. uh, I mean, cheese that's, fountains yeah, what as we well, did though. This evening. Um. <laughs> <laughs> What was the what was the last one again? Be how to commit a perfect murder, a machine learning approach. Hmm. Again, that's, that definitely seems like you could have switched out the word uh, some well some techie word with yeah. the word murder there. I am <laughs> leaning towards the middle one being true. Tell me, middle one being true. How about you, Ed? This is difficult because. We've you've added the dimension of <laughs> yeah. we have to guess whether each of them are true or lie. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll back Joe and say the middle one's true, um, and that the the first one and the last one. Well, actually, I did say the second yeah, one might not be me, really Harry Potter. I think I just but... want it to be true so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to go with. The middle one, the Harry Potter one, is the true one, and the other two are lies. I imagine that everyone is disappointed now that you guys are not going for, you know, Fight each other's it out right the on, on the competition. <laughs> but you actually got it right. The oh, correct fantastic. one. It was the true one is can Harry Potter still put a spell on us in a second language? It's an actual one. Let me tell you the real um, titles of the other two. It's the first one is the fluid dynamics of the Not chocolate fountain. Uh, okay. <laughs> and the th- no, and the third one, the full title is how to commit a perfect murder, and it's published in the Journal of Law, Crime, and uh, I see, something right. else. You've added the machine learning <laughs> component there. Yeah, right. So that was yes, I did uh, to confuse you, yeah. and then you thought, no, it must. It's not murder. Actually, there is a scientific but paper food on how thought. to commit a perfect murder. Oh. Okay. A legal paper. <laughs> at least. 
uh, no, that's the first one. Fluid dynamics of say, the chocolate fountain. I have to say the uh, the methodology that they used for the chocolate fountain. They could well apply it to a cheese fountain. I would imagine. <laughs> that's what I thought. That's why I thought to put it in so that you could. Although the viscosity of chocolate and cheese is a bit different. Exactly. I Same methodology. Let's... Different data. There you go. That's science. Idea. Idea. Right there <laughs> for a new science paper. Okay, the second and final group, guys. I went um, seasonal, and they're all Christmas-related. Hmm. Okay? Okay. So, I'm not sure how I feel about it. It's, we're recording this on the 23rd of November. I'm a bit of a Grinch when it comes to that sort of thing. But, you have um, permission. Go ahead, go ahead. But I try to be, you know, <laughs> topic. <laughs> okay, so paper number one. The effect of having Christmas dinner with in-laws on gut microbiota composition. Okay. <laughs> Paper number two. Guns for Christmas. Advertising in Boys Lives magazine from 1911 to 2012. And the final one. I like you even less at Christmas dinner. Prejudice level as a function of an approaching national or religious, religious holiday. <laughs> Can they all be true? <laughs> I I wish <laughs> I wish that our our um listeners could see your faces because you just look hmm so intrigued with all of them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um I'm, I'm, I don't know, do you have any thoughts, Joe? I might have to ask you to repeat them all, I think. Go for the what's the first one again? The effect of having Christmas dinner with in-laws on gut microbiota composition. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I that definitely sounds like you could have picked a, a gut microbiome paper mm. with a name and, and substituted in the <laughs> the the Christmas in-laws there. I'm I'm leaning towards lie on that one, Jay. What do you think? Yeah, I think I'm leaning towards lie. Okay. Okay. Say the second one again. The second. Yeah. Guns for Christmas advertising in Boys Life magazine from uh, 1911 I, to 2012. True on this one. Yeah, used to be some pretty dodgy yeah, stuff that was sold yeah. to kids, <laughs> including weapons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. so we have it's, lie and true. I think and now it's got to be some one. sort of um, American Christmas magazine that sells you guns, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I suppose. Okay, last one. I will repeat it again. I like you even less at Christmas dinner. Prejudice level as a function of an approaching national or religious holiday. Hmm. I, c- I could imagine uh, I can imagine researchers yeah. writing a title like that, thinking thinking that they're they're funny. <laughs> so, what's your guess? I think it's a lie. True lie. I, I think that sounds like it could be. Oh, okay. I was going to say I thought oh, that one sounds like maybe it could we be compete tricky. on this one, Ed. <laughs> so we have a competi- yeah. a little bit of competition. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. Well, I so so, so, you- so my so my thinking is that I could imagine. Social scientists who worry about <laughs> that kind of thing, uh, <laughs> prejudice, prejudice and, and stuff, <laughs> being like, "Oh, let's see, yeah. <laughs> well, what what effect does uh, the time of the year and if we're close to Christmas or some other holiday have on that sort of thing?" Um, and then coming up with a funky title based on that. But um, yeah, I don't know. You, you reckon it's yeah, you reckon I reckon no, too not impossible. I think the middle, the second one, I think is true. That's my, it's my gut. Okay. 
<laughs> very good, very good. Okay. Let's go so, let's go with the the middle one true then and the other two lies. Okay. Good. Because uh, on this one I actually I feel so you. they're all true. Uh, <laughs> no, because you actually said it first. You you actually said it. <laughs> yes. Can. can they all be true? Yes, they are all true. I couldn't make them better. I literally went on Google Scholar and typed Christmas and just picked titles oh, and I was like nothing needs changing. I like this. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> no changing, no. And you're right, The Guns for Christmas is about um I actually went and read a little read a little bit and it's about how usually as a you know, an, an endearing gift they give a gun for a preteen boy. It's ideal. Nothing says as Christmas a, like a gun. Wow. You know, Christmas gift. Uh, uh- exactly so yes that was our first round of would ai lie to you Mm -hmm. and maybe our listeners can tell us um if they have any way of you know checking on twitter and telling us whether they did get it right or wrong and (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah go ahead that was our first spin of uh alan turing's wheel of fun I think uh, when we do play that, we were just discussing before we started recording, we could uh, do a similar version of that game, but uh, with some AI-generated headlines, perhaps. And it would really be, <laughs> would AI lie to you? But, but thanks for, yes, thanks for that, B. That was, that was great fun. I, I guess we got, we got one out of two, so that's, that's, a, good, that's a strong <laughs> 50% from us there. <laughs> yes, it is. I am, I am quite, quite happy. <laughs> On the... Um, on the topic of um, people who like to buy guns and so on and so forth, <laughs> we've got an interesting uh, a podcast episode today. Um, it's not it's not totally relevant, but kind of relevant. Um, we interviewed um, someone who you know, B, a little while ago uh, about psychopaths. Um, who was who it who we interviewed? We interviewed Alex Tokarev, and he's going to talk to us about modelling psychopathy. Uh, and it has been... A couple of months since we recorded it, um, so it should be quite interesting. Uh, yeah, it's hopefully. it's a it's a timeless topic though. That these people are not going away anytime soon, as you as you'll hear. <laughs> um, and it does have some uh, for, for people listening and are interested in AI and data science. He's he's using machine learning methods to uh, to work on this, so definitely has some uh, some AI relevance there. But without further ado, let's uh, go to Alex Toporev and Modeling Psychopaths. Hi, everyone. Um, today we are joined by Alexander Tokarev, a very recent PhD graduate from the University of Manchester. I want to pause here and congratulate him because this is September and he got um, his final confirmation of PhD this month, I think. So congratulations on your uh, PhD. Um, Alex does research in organizational psychology, personality psychology and psychometrics. Uh, but he has a strong mathematical and statistical background, and so the, he applies these to psychology. He's going to tell us a little bit about modeling personality traits, um, in particular the ones known as the dark core or the dark triad. So, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, um, Bia. Thank you, Ed. So, so the first question is, before we begin with the actual modeling and all the actual mathematics, we want to start by asking you to explain to our listeners what is this thing that I said about the dark core or the dark triad. 
Yeah, sure, absolutely. They, uh, thank you so much for asking this. So, usually there are two types of personality traits. Some of them are good and other traits are very bad. And we're going to talk about the bad ones because they're far more fun to talk about. So, um, specifically, we're going to talk about the traits that include psychopathy, narcissism, and something that's called Machiavellianism. So I'll just give you a very brief introduction as to what those are. I'm sure that you've met people in real life who possess at least some levels of these traits, so you will um, learn more about this. So essentially, uh, psychopathy is a dark personality trait that, that's defined by four major characteristics. So the first one is callousness, and these are the people who are very unemotional and very cold and remorseless. The second one is manipulativeness, and that has to do with people trying to manipulate and exploit others for their personal gain. The third characteristic is impulsivity. In other words, psychopaths are very impetuous, and they usually act on an impulse. And the last one is something that is called in psychology conduct problems, or in more simple terms, antisociality. So, psychopath antisocial. And this, this combination of the four characteristics defines what we call psychopathy. So the next, the next major dark characteristic is called narcissism. There are many definitions, and one of the most common ones is the one that defines narcissism in terms of two traits. One is attention-seeking, and another one is essentially uh, entitlement or grandiosity. So, attention seekers, well know those, we've all, we've all met those, maybe on Instagram, maybe in some other places, everybody can universally recognize attention seekers when they see them. And people who, uh, and the second characteristic um, would be uh, grandiosity, that is a sense of being superior to other people, it's the sense where somebody thinks they're so much better than everybody else. So, and what's and the last characteristic is Machiavellianism. That is really, t it, it's fairly complicated, but let me give you a very, very simple introduction. So, Machiavellianism has to do with being very manipulative and very, very strategic, but not necessarily to the point where you wouldn't, you would end up killing somebody or murdering somebody, like in the case of psychopathy. So, these three personality traits, psychopathy, narcissism and Machiavellianism. They're very highly correlated. That is, they overlap a lot. And the overlap between these traits, it's called the dark core, okay? So this little overlap that they have, a very big dependent on circumstances, is usually defined by two common traits, which are callousness, that is being remorseless, and also manipulativeness, that is being exploitative. So essentially, these characteristics, these two traits, are the ones that are shared by both, by all psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And that is what the Darko is. And there, there are also many other personality characteristics that are very bad, but we will probably talk about them sometime later. Um, I guess everyone is just trying to think who they know that is that matches these descriptions. It's like, who's a psychopath and who's a narcissist? <laughs> it's interesting that there is these division of different words, psychopath, narcissist, and then I guess, you know, Machiavellianism named after Machiavelli, who 
uh, as far as I can remember, is some Renaissance Italian um, diplomat. Yeah. yeah, diplomat. Right. Yeah. Wrote wrote influential books. <laughs> right. Right. Um, okay. So, and presumably these sorts of things uh, can be measured. Um, how, how can you quantify something that is so subjective as a personality trait? And can you tell us, you know, what is uh, psychometrics? Is that is that what you would call this this measuring of these traits? Yes. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you so much for asking this question. It's probably one of the most important ones. So I'll start with a more general term. Uh, I will start by defining what psychometrics is as a discipline to give everybody a bit of a background and basically psychometrics is the study of measuring intangible variables such as for example personality characteristics or people's IQ intellectual quotient or for example attitudes so anything that you cannot see that is related to individual differences is measured by or within the discipline of psychometrics and um to answer your uh, second question, which was to do with actual measurement of psychopathy, narcissism, and other traits, mm. you're absolutely right. It is a well-known problem that um, measurement of personality traits is very, very, is very subjective. You know, for example, the way you perceive your friends or the way you perceive your colleagues might not be the same as other colleagues or other friends the way that other friends perceive them. Yeah. So there are ways that we're trying to do to, we're trying to implement to essentially circumvent those problems. So one of the, um, I, will, I will talk you through a thinking process of how measuring usually happens. So in terms of bad personality characteristics, such as psychopathy, for example, or narcissism, I guess if you try to ask a narcissist, or a narcissist or a psychopath, if they're a narcissist or a psychopath, they will probably say no. So it sounds like it's probably not the best or not the most accurate approach to this. So um, after a lot of um, failed attempts at trying to measure such complicated uh, traits, uh, psychometrists have essentially decided to use a different approach. They said, okay, we can't ask these people, but we need to be able to say with some degree of objectivity whether these people are psychopaths or not. So why can't we ask everybody around these people to provide numerical quantifiable ratings of their behavior? So we're going to, uh, if we have a person who, let's say, is psychopath, or we think that he might be one, we're going to ask his friends, we're going to ask his colleagues, we're going to ask his parents, and maybe anyone else. And these people are going to answer a set of behavioral questions related to the person of interest. So, for example, in terms of, uh, in terms of, for example, um, conduct problems, um, some people would be asked a question to rate how often the person in question, the person in question, uh, drinks, or if they take drugs, or if they're aware of any other legal problems that the person have experienced. What what kind of problem was that? Sorry, um, this would Did be you say a conduct problem. Uh, co yeah, the definition that we use is conduct problems, but you can call it being antisocial. It's pretty much the same thing, right, at least right. as defined within the discipline. It doesn't really matter. 
But the key point is that we need to ask people a set of more objective questions that relate mm -hmm. to the person's behavior, and then people around can more or less objectively, or with a lesser degree of subjectivity, tell whether whether the person in question is uh, a drinker, if they act impulsively, if they act very cold, and if they're very remorseless and very oblivious to pain of other people. And when we get a lot of information from all of the people around on a number of behavioral questions, then we essentially quantify these responses uh, together to come to a certain conclusion whether somebody might be on a psychopathic spectrum or not. So the related issue here is that being when we describe personality traits at least numerically, we never quite we should never fall into we should never fall into false dichotomy whether somebody is a psychopath or not, whether yeah, somebody then right, is right. a narcissist or not. Everything is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to determine is to what degree somebody is psychopathic or somebody is narcissistic. Or maybe if, if we rephrase it in even more technical terms, we can say in which percentile of the population does the person right, stand right. relative to um, relative to psychopathy, for example. So that is usually the way, some of the simplest ways we used to quantify. There are some details in terms of uh, building levels of error in the measurement, but I think is this is something that we can talk later about if you're interested. Um, I'm just again, I, I you were saying that if you ask a narcissist if they're narcissists, they wouldn't say I, that's clearly the first problem. No psychopath is going to admit that they are psychopaths or even recognize that that they are. I guess, uh, but this is this is all quantifiable. But my question now is. Given the nature of the data, even if you are, because the way you put it, you're instead of asking open questions to people, you're asking very closed ones, so they will give you a more objective um, response. But even so, how much skepticism is needed to look at the values before any analysis, any quantification is done, given the nature of the data? Yes. So, uh, Bia, thank you so much for this question. I think it's an absolute excellent question that... Uh, everybody should know more about. And you're absolutely right. So to be able to really answer it, we need to take a step forward towards a very specific uh, type of uh, mathematics and statistics called latent variable modeling. And despite these fairly scary terms, all it really means is that we're trying to measure something that is otherwise unobservable by using a set of characteristics that other people can see and can feel. For example, psychopathy in itself, we call it a latent trait because we can't see it. But then there are behaviors associated with it that people can see, feel, and then rate. So what we're usually trying to do is that we're trying to explain as much variance in observable behaviors as we can in terms of the actual psychopathy, which is a latent trait, and the rest of the behaviors, the rest of the variance that is unexplained by psychopathy is going to ex be explained by error terms. And then there are different ways of modeling error terms that maybe we will talk later if you're very interested. So 
what we usually do is that um, there are specific guidelines as to the level of error that is allowed before we even start modeling. So usually we say, for example, that if the error of measurement is fairly small, then we can proceed to further model the effects of psychopathy. If the error is very big and the model of psychopathy just doesn't fit, then unfortunately we cannot proceed with any numerical analysis. So that is very paramount. In, that is paramount in terms of uh, statistical and mathematical decisions before modeling takes place. So we do look very carefully into levels of error associated with our measurement. Cool. Um, you, something you said a little earlier on really triggered my inner biologist, which, but actually then you addressed it really nicely, which was yeah, um, go for the, fact, the fact that, you know, the goal here is to, to classify someone as either a psychopath or not, or they're in this dark triad or not. And yet you're fully acknowledging the, the biological reality, which is that you're talking about complex personality traits and there is no clear dividing line between one category and another. Um, and that you're, what you're really looking at is where do people lie um, on how much of that trait they have relative to the population. So, I, I mean... There's, so pre- presumably there's on all of these measures and and as you've explained they are measures to do with essentially asking people questions about how they feel around other people but when you when you look at um how different people compare is there are there like normal distributions for each of those dark triad traits in the population or or are there lots of people and then only a really small number of people. Well, well, that would be a normal distribution, right? You'd have a, a tail end uh, at the most extreme end, which is hardly anyone. There's a few psychopaths. Most people are, are somewhere in the middle, somewhat psychopathic. And and a few people are really docile. I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm imagining. <laughs> hey, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, you're absolutely right. So we're trying to use behavioral markers and behavioral indicators Mm. in a certain combination to essentially define how extreme somebody is on the spectrum of psychopathy relative to the population. And usually, the more extreme somebody is, the more indicative that is of um, problems associated with um, what that person's behavior can bring about either in organizations or in the home environment or uh, within friends, interactions, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that leads quite nicely to the next question because yeah, up to now we've been speaking quite abstractly about this, but you know, why would people want to measure this? Well, um, so how, how is you, how have you used this in your own work? And I believe that you've been using methods to understand the effect that psychopathy and narcissism uh, of em- of employers and their and their employees and, and how they relate to each other is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. So we've essentially tried to focus on one of the domains of outcomes associated with psychopathy, that is corporate world, and um, we try to this this re- sorry I, I I don't want to interrupt, but this really like brings to mind the film uh, American <laughs> Psycho. Which I, which I guess is originally a book, but 
you're you're, ex- you're exactly right you know yeah. i was actually inspired you know <laughs> <laughs> well well we have this idea and perhaps you'll yeah perhaps you'll explain when you go to talk about your own work but um that yes some of these high-flying um ceos um highly paid corporate type people are on the end of the psych- psychopathic scale but anyway I'll, I'll let you tell debunk that or tell us it's true <laughs> uh, actually you're absolutely right you know i think it all started as a joke it all started as a um almost as a statistical anecdote that it's quite possible it's quite probable that within organizations uh there are more psychopaths or the prevalence of psychopathy in organizations is greater than that in the general population and Sometime later, after research has been conducted, it actually turned out to be true. So, in terms of numbers, there's, um, there is about 1% of psychopaths in the population. Within organizations, the prevalence of psychopathy is, four, is up to four times greater, depending on the level of seniority. So, when we look at the most senior people, the prevalence of psychopathy would be around 4%. Uh, some data varies between 3.5% to 4%. Uh, within about mid-level management, there would be about uh, 25 to 3% psychopath. And within the lowest entry-level jobs, there would be about 1% uh, of psychopaths. So you're absolutely right that uh, there are more psychopaths in who crave for power, there are more psychopaths at the very top levels of organizations compared to that, uh, compared to the prevalence of psychopaths in the general population. And some people speculate there are a lot of theoretical work in development that basically is based on the fact that the power of being CEOs itself appeals to psychopaths and then psychopaths usually try to use all of their charisma they try to use all of their charm to rise through organizational ranks as much as they can and as quickly as they can and um, one of the uh, best uh, scientific books about this is the book that's called um, snakes in suits that was um essentially uh, it was the book that was published in 2007 and it was done by uh, it was published by uh, some of the most prominent uh, scientific names in the field uh, of psychopathy um gentlemen such as uh Newman and Hare so Robert Hare is the most dominant currently figure associated with what we define as psychopathy nowadays and um Essentially, yes, you're right. Um, Within organizations, psychopathy can be a real problem. So first of all, we have have strong empirical evidence that psychopathy is, managerial psychopathy that is, is associated with a high prevalence of workplace bullying. We also know that managerial psychopathy is also associated with a high prevalence of psychological distress in employees, we know that psycho- we know that um, managerial psychopathy is also associated with clinical levels of depression within employees, and that is absolutely huge. It's got massive implications in terms of the corporate uh, corporate world. We also know that psychopathy, managerial psychopathy, is associated with increase in counterproductive work behaviors. That is, psychopaths are associated with 
stealing. They're associated with such actions as embezzlement, where they misappropriate funds. Um, psychopaths do a quantifiable, a largely quantifiable amount of damage to both organizations and employees within organizations. So I really like your reference. Yes, um, it, it does work. Well, so it, it's interesting you say that. Um, that makes me think of a lot of different questions. I mean, I, I, I guess, firstly, you said the corporate world, but presumably does this apply to all, all organizations or is it only large ones and then does it you know include governments as well as corporations or does it include you know a small business for instance i don't know yes so um that's an excellent question so um there are a couple of uh psychopathy researchers who who are very interested in the very questions that you've just asked i think one of them is called paul babiak and another one is called um I think another one is called Body, B-O-D-D-Y. He's a gentleman in London who lives in London. I think he's, um, he's a researcher in one of the universities. So what they basically say, more or less, is that the, the higher, the larger the organization and the more power there is consolidated at the right. top, the more, in, the more impulse or the more impetus on motivation there will be for psychopath to climb through corporate ranks to get to the ultimate levels of power so that they can abuse the, that power in any way they see fit. And that is very dangerous. So to give you some examples, uh, there is a large prevalence of psychopath within financial organizations. There is a large prevalence of psychopath in or we should be very careful with wording. We should say there is a greater prevalence of psychopaths in financial organizations, within military, within government, than within general population or even small businesses. And that is, uh, at this point, undeniable. There is a lot of evidence pointing in that direction, yes. I'm just, I'm just thinking about, like, also there are some industries, as you said, that would be uh, more attractive to psychopaths. I don't. I, I don't imagine psychopaths that keen on. I don't know fighting global climate change or something, but more like petrol, like fuel and petroleum companies. I was just. I think there would be more of a prevalence as well. Um, but I, I, I was going to go with a question, but I think I think I missed it. Ed, you, did you have more questions on 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 this bit? Because you had more questions, yeah. Well. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that, B. I mean, I I would imagine that all organisations that that hold power. I mean, it, I mean, so from from what Alex is saying, that well, so it's it's more so in the obvious ones: finance, military, government. <laughs> yes, I imagine all the but, listeners uh, were like nodding <laughs> <laughs> quietly. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but so the overall the hypothesis is essentially confirming. Uh, people's probably what most of us have as predisposed beliefs, which doesn't always happen in science. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Let, why don't we ask you, Alex, can, can you give us some more of like the evidence that you mentioned um, for this? Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just I don't I don't want to uh, to just sound like we're having a go at the, uh, <laughs> the government, the military, the financial sector. Um, um, yeah, 
I would be um I would be very I would be very delighted to do that although I have to preempt that I have to be very careful in terms of <laughs> naming specific people and also trying to analyze their actions and behavior so uh let's um let's try to be hypothetical perhaps <laughs> so we can all imagine that there might be some people who who would be associated with um for example, corporate, uh, for example, with uh, embezzlement, there are plenty of hedge funds whose, whose, um, whose heads were essentially disappearing after, in, after making absolutely, after stealing large amounts of money from private investors. And I would say that um, the literature is pretty much uh, replete. If, even if we try to Google it, we will find a lot of different uh, examples. So uh, perhaps one example that comes to uh, head is it comes to my head right now is uh, is the hedge fund that was um, built somewhere around 2007. I think it was called the um, the Black Capital. And essentially what happened was that one of the leaders one day fleed the country and they've disappeared with all of the money that they had. And up to this day, nobody's found where that person is. And if we continue looking for other examples, I'm sure we will find plenty of other hedge funds. We will find uh, plenty of other politicians who do very questionable decisions, who take very questionable decisions, especially in terms of uh, in terms of lobbying certain industries, for example, or in terms of uh, in terms of not promoting equal rights within specific communities that are disadvantaged mm. and not privileged in the first place. But I think so. So what I was getting at really was um, so you said that these traits obviously exist in one percent of the general population. And Around that, there's an est- it's an estimate. I think okay. we probably need more research to be able to uh, speak about it more confidently. So that is an approximation which should be taken with a grain of salt. But but regardless of what the specific percentage is, we think there's clearly more, and there's evidence that there's more. There's a higher percentage in these kinds of organisations that have a lot of power in the higher ranks. So, so where where did you get where are you finding that evidence and what's the research around around that? So the research around that is um, is usually is usually very interesting. Uh, we have to be very careful how it is conducted. So uh, one of the studies that we conducted was essentially around uh, corporate world and the effects of managerial and managerial psychopathy and narcissism uh, within organizations in the United States. So what we essentially have done, we've contacted, we've uh, we've been working with one of the uh, data collection agencies that's called Qualtrics. And Qualtrics has the data frame of pretty much um, data frame that approximates to a very high degree um, the American workforce uh, in terms of numerous demographic characteristics such as uh, age, uh, occupations, uh, and ethnicity. So what we've basically done was that by working in collaboration with them, we've essentially had access to that massive data frame of uh, U.S. employees 
and we've done a simple random sample of those U.S. employees. And th- those employees had to provide quantifiable ratings of uh, behaviors associated with their managers uh, in terms of psychopathy and narcissism. I and see, after we've collected that data, we've done modeling as to verify whether psychopathy and uh, corporate psychopathy, you can call it that way, and narcissism are essentially the constructs that are mathematically valid to start with. And when we've found out and got evidence that they were, what we've started doing later, we started modeling how that relates to workplace bullying and also employee depression associated with that bullying. And we managed to, um, so in that way, we managed to, um, we managed to find a, a legitimate sample of uh, U.S. employees who essentially marked the behaviors of their own managers as opposed to asking managers themselves, which would be a very invalid technique. So with this data, we've uh, conducted, we've done a number of structural models, and we've concluded that um, some of the results associated, associated with corporate or managerial psychopathy and narcissism are very detrimental to organizations. So, for example, workplace, um, uh, I do apologize, corporate psychopathy explains slightly more than 40% of variance in workplace bullying. And that is absolutely incredible how we, it's absolutely incredible, essentially, when we know that the prevalence of psychopath, even within mid-level management, it's all, it's almost, um, it's around two and a half to three percent, but the amount of damage that they do within organizations is disproportionately greater than that. Right, right. With the bullying figures going up to uh, 40% as by, um, as by the uh, number of explained, uh, as the percentage of explained variants that I've just noted. And mm-hmm. then we continued with this modeling and we've realized that this workplace bullying further leads to employee level of depression. And that level of depression uh, was clinical. So it wasn't just the level of depression related to, uh, that could be attributed to certain mood swings or bad days. There was a very strong effect. And um, we've basically concluded that um, psychopaths who who end up bullying employees mm-hmm. usually end up in a situation where employees end up with significant levels of clinical depression that perhaps need wow. medical okay. intervention. So it would mean that employees would need probably medication or some other therapy in order to snap out of that. So yeah, that definitely uh, clarifies the motivation behind the work, right? Because I guess the goal is if you can know this and if if, if in future employers can somehow utilize this research to, you know, adjust their hiring practices to perhaps to avoid getting these people into uh, positions of power in the first place, they can uh, save their employees a, a lot of, um, of hassle well more than hassle um clinical depression that's pretty uh that's pretty heavy it's definitely something that uh and i can't imagine that it's good for the the company either so um what really happened was that so the research that we've conducted um 
we realized that there was a problem and that field of organizational research is currently very under-researched. So we're right. trying to bring more exposure to the subject. So one of the ways was that uh, the research we've conducted was actually published in 2017. We've managed mm -hmm. to publish it in one of the world's best clinical psychology journals with an attempt of giving the greatest possible exposure of these results so that we're hoping to bring about change within our society. So there are certain ways in which we can continue to do it. So one of the ways would be to continue with the research of quantifying the effects of managerial psychopathy and narcissism on employees so that people are well aware of the problems associated with um, this uh, dark personality uh, type of managers. And another, another hope and another uh, line of inquiry that we're pursuing is to develop organizational measures that can be put in place within organizations to test and sift out psychopaths before they enter the organization. If that happens, this can uh, have long-standing positive effects on organizational functioning and thus prevent organizations uh, from developing a lot of these problems in the long run. So currently we are working on developing this um, organizational measures that can be used by HR departments in firms that can be used by other individuals who seek to employ uh, people to do any tasks that they want. Um, I, I remember what my question was. Uh, so can you can you backtrack it? Um, if if there's a higher prevalence um, of, you know, of psychopathy in managerial positions to lead to depre clinical depression, can you do it the other way around? Can you look at a place that has a higher incidence of clinical depress depression or you have a lot of people complaining about um, bullying and backtrack it to someone, someone being uh, a psychopath in a managerial role? Uh, Bia, you're my... Uh favorite person on the podcast after Ed now. <laughs> so um, this is exactly, so when we were in the process of developing this research, we addressed that question too. And it's unbelievably important because as we all know, correlation does not mean causation. So in that case, the way we tried to address it was that um, I will explain how we've addressed it. But I have to start by saying that it's an excellent question that should always be asked whether the reverse effect is equally possible. So we're not attributing wrong causation or wrong causal effects to something. So, for example, um, what we've um, the best way or let's say the most comprehensive way of addressing this question would be to conduct longitudinal studies. At the moment, we do not have longitudinal studies to be able to fully account for the reverse causation. However, there are latent variable modeling techniques with something that's called recursive models, where we can try to fit the models that essentially go, that essentially do the reverse causation. And what we find is that the reverse causation models, they fit significantly less than the models that go in the forward direction. And that served as initial evidence that perhaps there's more 
weight to the assertion that it is the psychopathy that drives bullying and then bullying drives depression than the other way around. Do we need to do more research to be more comprehensive and conclusive about it? Absolutely, yes. Uh, do we have some initial evidence that that might not be the case? Also, yes, on a speculative term at the moment. So also, what, we're what we were trying to understand was that it's far more likely that psychopathy leads to bullying than bullying leads to somebody being a psychopath. That's another line of argumentation that we've used. But again, as I have to say, Bia, that was an absolutely excellent question that we've also discussed with other people. So thank you so much for asking. I was actually waiting for you to ask. <laughs> I, I just want to say that uh, your answer is going to make a lot of our uh, listeners very happy because you said some of the buzz sentences <laughs> that I said around the cheering. <laughs> right. It's uh, it ca causal inference, you know. Yes. Yeah. We've had a couple of uh, of uh, well, we we've had a uh, one of our podcast guests on two episodes is a causal inference researcher at Turing. So um, so yeah, no. It, I was it, I was thinking exactly that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, just just another question that I remember that I forgot a while ago, but it was we were talking about how how careful you have to be with when you think about government. Um, so the, it's, it's more of a personal question. The question is, do you, given that you study this, do you actually look at like certain, I'm not going to name anyone because this is a, a podcast, uh, but there are certain governments in the world that we can, I, I guess all the listeners are thinking of a couple. When you look at it, can you, do you find yourself looking for the indications and the traits of either psychopathy or narcissism or, or something like that. In, I'd in say, like, uh, personally, be if I was going to answer that question, I'd say I, I'd find it hard to pick a, a world leader <laughs> who, who wasn't. Uh, who doesn't have any of these traits. Yeah, exactly. I, think, I, think, I think particularly narcissism is something that is quite high in world leaders at the moment. But <laughs> yeah. we, can name, we can drop a few names, but we probably better not, not do it. <laughs> Let's make our producer's life easier without having to censor us. <laughs> Don't want um, this episode to be uh, censored in China or any other countries. <laughs> Not naming anything. <laughs> naming any countries, just... Um... Examples, yes. <laughs> We're treading a fine line here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's an excellent question, you know. And um, the way I prefer to think about it is this. In science, it's very common to make this mistake where we're looking for where we're looking to affirm our hypothesis whatever that might be so what i usually do is that i look for i look i looked at individuals more holistically i'm looking for both behavioral indicators that would support this assertion as well as behavioral indicators that contradict this assertion and then we need to we need to use all these pieces of evidence with careful weighing to come to a uh, final balanced conclusion because we don't want to fall into a trap of looking for evidence to confirm our beliefs absolutely and this is clearly um a trap you don't want to fall into um when it's something as sensitive as uh, calling people psychopaths. <laughs> we have to be extremely careful, yes, because it's just, um, it's a difficult term to use. And, um... Yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, so um, Alex, we we are the Turing Podcast, and we're we're um, you know we're coming from the National Institute of A of AI and Data Science. Um, so my next question is related to that. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about the different modelling and how you have to make sure that the um, that the the causes run in one direction rather than the other, making sure that you that uh, you know that um, it's um, the psychopathy that's causing things like the bullying and the depression, uh, as opposed to the other way around. Um, but how, if at all, have you used um, machine learning uh, in your research? Yes, it's an excellent question. So now uh, it's getting to. We're coming towards this being a hot topic. So we started researching psychopathy, and now we're hoping to incorporate some um, machine learning techniques to improve our inference. So um, there might be multiple ways in which machine learning can be very beneficial to better understand psychopathy and its effects on both population and organizational outcomes. So what I was thinking recently was that uh, usually we use... A pen and pencil type of scoring for psychopathy. In other words, we need to ask individuals to provide um, ratings of how strongly they believe somebody is a psychopath. Of course, not that question, but the actual behaviors, behavioral indicators associated with it. So mm-hmm. if we look at this uh, from a different perspectives, we might think that we might take a step forward in terms of being able to start developing algorithms that will be able to identify psychopathic behavior or psychopathic behaviors from, for example, video uh, input. So we have cameras that can look at, that can record people's behaviors. And if something in that people's behavior that might fall into a psychopathic spectrum, then that may help us to Sports psychopathy uh, before something bad might happen, or at least it can help us to alert people that there is a certain chance or probability associated with somebody behaving in a psychopathic way. For example, if we see one of the behavioral indicators um, being caught uh, by, uh, by the algorithm, that might not be suggestive that the person is a psychopath. There are a lot of behavioral markers. So if we manage to develop algorithms that can visually or through video input encode behaviors and be able Mm -hmm. to class them as psychopathic, then we might be able to spot psychopath much easier with much greater accuracy because we would have a lot of data to learn from and we would thus be able to use that data to further contribute to the study of psychopathy. And it wouldn't be as subjective, I imagine, because if you have the algorithm uh, classifying and learning, it would be uh, less about I, I, what do I, you think. B, I'm going to absolutely disagree with you. Uh, I think uh, what Alex has what Alex has just suggested sounds absolutely terrifying to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I'm, so, I'm, I'm not talking about the Big Brother. Sorry, I didn't I didn't refer to 1984 at all. <laughs> I didn't refer to the um, technologies that are currently being used in uh, in China. No, I didn't refer to those. Uh, it was just a random comment. <laughs> I was thinking as well that this is can you can you imagine this for like police investigations and and just like trying to figure out if someone is a psychopath that would be so exciting for a TV show just, uh, just I was thinking that's uh, an excellent observation I was thinking more about uh, the airport security 
That was what I had in yes, mind. Yes, for the random searches. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so we can be even more um, unfriendly in terms of race, um, in terms of um, random searches. Yes. Well, yeah, I think you're, you're taking it down an even more dystopian route there, B, by <laughs> suggesting that it be used to uh, for a reality show or something. <laughs> but, but no, I mean seriously, that I mean the idea that any algorithm based on video input can decide any behavioral categorization and that then that any government or policymaker is going to make decisions based on that that's that's all pretty pretty dystopian sounding stuff but um i mean it, it it's interesting i i guess it's interesting it as a purely scientific question for whether we whether movement and behavior can be linked to what we know as uh, um behavioral traits uh, or personality traits but I, I, I fail to see how I don't I, I can't imagine it actually being useful in that sense, because how would you be able to get the data set of um, people behaving in a certain way without, you know, massive intrusion of, of people's liberty and privacy and so on? I, I don't know. I can't imagine I can't imagine that the, the science working, let alone working in an ethical way. <laughs> I think I think I think I absolutely agree with you on this. Um, this does sound a bit like a. Um, dystopian idea uh having said that having said that it's something it's one of the directions that i guess we could try to take it and what we need to emphasize is that we should never let we should never let algorithms to fully decide yeah, yeah. on the on what should be done we should use that as mm-hmm. information and as suggestion towards something and um, I guess the algorithm would mo- would be more of like lifting a red flag towards a behavior rather than exactly um, diagnosing someone as a psychopath or a narcissist. Just saying, hey, this was a weird behavior that no one saw, but it's recognized and picked up by by the algorithm. Yes, and then maybe people can uh, attend to it, or if this behavior happens in certain context that relate to security and health and safety of a lot of people, that's when uh, this can be very critical. Mm-hmm. For example, if we look at um, safety-critical industries, we know that a lot of, um, we know a lot of cases. We know a lot of cases uh, with, for example, uh, pilots who decided to uh, crash planes and nobody attended to their psychological health before. I'm not talking about psychopathy in this case, but I'm talking about things such as clinical depression or levels of clinical depression. And equally, there could be there are uh, behavioral markers associated with clinical depression. So if it just happens that nobody around, uh, for example, pilots is able to raise the flag about mental health of that individual, we certainly wouldn't suffer from some kind of system that could at least alert us as to the possibility of uh, potential issues with the mental health of a person who we entrust our safety. Oh, the ethical lines on this one are very, so, very tough. Very so tough. Lot. Like, so we, we need to tread so lightly on this because I do understand that in the wrong hands it would be so highly uh, abused. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I think absolutely it's, it's point as well. Like how, how this would always, this could be extremely poorly used. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right, and that is why we also need to make sure that before we 
do any of this kind of research, there have to be very strong ethical guidelines in place that would prevent any misuse of such technology. There have to be very strong regulations, uh, including legal actions and laws that would make anyone uh, criminally liable for misusing such uh, tools. 100%, I absolutely agree with you. That was an excellent question. <laughs> All right, Alex, that's, uh, I think that's a really nice uh, um, point to end our sort of main set of questions. We, before we let you go, there, we've got a bonus question, which I think maybe there's probably, if, I don't know, I imagine it, if you ever go to um, parties, this is the sort of thing people would probably ask you if you said you, <laughs> that people, you, you study psychometrics. So, you know, there's a lot of things like personality tests online that presumably people just make up. But um, as someone who actually studies personality psychology, yeah, w- what's your opinion on those sorts of things? Um, um, I will give you my opinion on this, okay? <laughs> so, so a lot of the tests that are um, being used online are simply invalid. So it's very rare to find a test that would give you some accurate um, results compared to tests that... I just made for fun purposes. So uh, psychometrics and measurement of personality traits has far more to do with the actual, has a greater emphasis on the measuring techniques by using statistics and mathematics than using um, uh, subjective um, subjective opinions as to what somebody feels like about you. I will give you a very simple example. Okay, So whenever you take a personality test, when it's developed properly, or when it's a valid test, we never tell you if you're a good person or you're a bad person. We never tell you if um, your personality is good or your personality is bad. We simply tell you that there is a population and you fall under a certain point within that population relative to that, relative to a certain trait. Mm-hmm. We also tell you some correlates associated with being uh, in that uh, in that position. So, for example, you can be more introverted than other people. For example, in the population, you can be um, you can fall within the 62nd percentile on introversion. So, you'd be more introverted than 62% of the population. We're not saying this is good. We're not saying this is bad. We're saying that these are just uh, facts, and this is just the numbers. And what we do then is that we make uh, certain suggestions that, for example your level of introversion is usually associated or correlated with specific outcomes. And that's what we do. We never make any um, commanding or any um, final word statements as to whether it's bad or whether it's good. Even with when negative traits... When you say we, who are you talking about? Uh, by we, I usually, um, I usually refer to uh, psychometrists or psychometricians, so right. people who uh, develop scientific tests with that are essentially valid compared to people who develop tests for fun. So I guess everyone's thinking about the the very famous one that is taken seriously. I guess it's Myers-Briggs, seriously by a certain uh, amount of the population, I guess. Um, Because there's, it's very, it, it, it just had a boom in the last few years, I think. It's the 16 personalities. So I guess... Because it, it fits people into these categories, it's already by default not something that is very reliable because it's just giving you a binary. 16 um, categories. Or, yeah, well, exactly. 
I mean, we can make any any number of categories that just make sense. And uh, what ty- what tests like my MySbricks usually tell you is that they say something along those lines. Um, you're very introverted, or you're very extroverted, or you like to hang out with your friends, or you like to be by yourself. They don't tell you what it really means. So when somebody tells you you're very introverted, a, a word very can be interpreted very differently oh, yeah, by very absolutely. many different people. <laughs> so we don't really know what very means, you know? What's very to one person might not be the same as what it means to another. And that's one of the problems with uh, Myers-Briggs. Another problem is um, its redundancy, or I would say the lack of covering or the lack of measuring enough personality traits. It's very reductionist in terms of a very limited number of personality traits that are being measured. And even those are not being measured accurately because there's a very mixed, there's mixed to no evidence that any of these traits have any mathematical structure, which means that if you decide to take one sample uh, based on Myers-Briggs, then you take another sample, and then you see the mathematical or statistical structure of traits within those two samples, they, they might not be the same, which means that you're probably measuring completely different things, but nobody really knows that, and nobody asks those questions because people tend to believe whatever they're usually presented with because of something that's called affirmation bias or confirmation bias. When somebody tell, gives you a long list of facts about yourself, you're probably more likely to attend and agree with the fact, or agree with um, sentences that describe you. And once you agree with those, you tend to disregard, don't give as much weight to the ones that don't uh, uh, don't agree with you. Are you telling me that my horoscope isn't really an accurate ref- rep- representation. Oh no, no, no! I'm telling you that your horoscope is right. I'm a Scorpio, for example. I mean, I, I fully, I, I, I fully believe that I am a psychopathic, manipulative, and I'm a womanizer as well. That's what it says. So I never noticed those things, but you know, we need to trust that, right? People have been using it for many, many, many hundreds of years. So yes, um, we can. You guys can consult your own horoscopes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that it, this is clearly something that you get asked a lot because that's such a thought out answer. <laughs> it's just like, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every <laughs> single party, there's at least one person who asks that and absolutely love it. And the funniest thing is that you need to say it with a serious face so that um, they don't really, they don't recognize immediately that you're just uh, joking about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, thanks very much, Alex. I think we'll we'll call it a day there. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank but you. Before you go, um, where can people find your work? Do you have uh, social media that people can follow? Um, and also, can you let us know, since you've just finished your PhD, what, what you're going to do next? So um, my plan... Okay, I will uh, answer questions in order. So first of all, in terms of uh, social media, um, currently... I'm able to uh, provide you guys with my uh, LinkedIn account. I'm not quite social. I'm very antisocial, so you can almost <laughs> say psychopathic. And I um, wouldn't expect anyone else to study psychopathy, would you? And um, I'm just going to give you my... I can provide you with my LinkedIn or with my email account. Anyone, you know, wants to have a casual chat about, you know, modeling techniques, I would be more than happy to. So I'm so happy search, to pass search them. Search your name on LinkedIn and they'll get the... Yeah. Yeah, so, Just search yeah. your name on LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> you can search my name on LinkedIn or on Google Scholar, for example. You know, they will um, see my picture, my email address. 
and I can pass you this um, this information, guys. Yeah. And the second question, Ed, was um, what I'm planning to do. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. I'll run. I'll run around catching psychopath. <laughs> no, I'm going to. Um, I'm going to start applying for uh, psychometric uh, jobs within yeah. industry, and I'm hoping to make my own uh, modest contribution to the field in terms of developing tools that can then contribute to running organizations in a far safer and successful way. Awesome. That's uh, that's a really positive uh, thing to do. So I wish you all the best with that, Alex. Uh, thank you, Ed. It was uh, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Bia. It was pleasure. Uh, it was pleasure talking to you guys. Absolutely. Lovely. Thank you for coming. Thanks. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation, or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B Costa Gomez, and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jamin Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com.